0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado has seen a swift political transformation in the last decade from a highly competitive purple state to one that's becoming deep blue. Meanwhile, the Colorado Republican Party has further divided people on the right.
1: I'm not going to donate to the party until they clean up their act and
0: become united. Our public affairs reporter, Benta Birkeland, helps us understand the GOP's changing strategy here. Then tomorrow's our state's birthday. We'll meet the team behind Colorado Postcards, those one-minute bursts of history and trivia.
2: And it's a nice way to counterbalance the news of the day at times. Something that reminds us we can be good to each other.
0: We'll share stories about a skyscraper, an early female physician, and Oscar Wilde. Plus, a new label empowers women in jazz.
3: I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. That was the one thing that I could do to be helpful.
4: Why not give something back to the community? It was easy. I would do it again.
5: Car donations are an important part of CPR's operating budget. If you have a vehicle you're ready to part with, please consider donating it to Colorado Public Radio. You'll need to supply your title, but you won't even need to leave your home. And then just like that, your car turns into the news you rely on and the music you love. Get started now at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Republicans may decide to end their primary in Colorado. Deliberations begin at a gathering this coming weekend. At issue is the fact that right now, unaffiliateds can take part in the GOP's primary. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland is here to talk about the deep divisions driving this debate. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. And the context here is that Colorado has transformed in about the last decade from a competitive purple state to deep blue. Republicans have fewer seats in the state house than ever. They hold no statewide office and they have a controversial new chair.
5: In the last few election cycles, we've seen that Republicans have not been able to win statewide races in Colorado, and they've lost seats. And I think this situation has a lot of Republicans pointing fingers at each other because they have different ideas for how to try to turn things around and what's driving this. For Republican State House Representative Ken DeGraff, it's really about taking a more conservative approach and not trying to appease people who don't subscribe to the party's core principles.
2: The status quo has been moving the, uh, the the party towards irrelevance for years so i'm not really sure why we would want to stick with with that mode
0: and that's a message we've heard from the new state party chair dave williams a former lawmaker he has pledged to go on the offense against democrats and even members of his own party he was elected in march by the grassroots conservative wing of the party.
5: Yeah, that's right. And Williams has definitely gone on offense and has been targeting certain Republicans. In fundraising emails, he attacked Congressman Doug Lamborn for voting for the debt ceiling bill. He went after a prominent lawmaker for backing the state budget and other officials for signing a letter in support of a trans lawmaker in Montana. And he has said too many Republicans cater to the left, and he's been a strong supporter of closing primaries to non-Republicans. What do other
0: Republicans think of Williams' approach? I mean, it's unusual for a state party chair to go after members of his own party.
5: Right. Well, people like Ken DeGraff support Williams and say it's okay to criticize Republicans who he believes aren't defending the Constitution. DeGraff also agrees that Republicans should opt out of the current primary system. He doesn't think unaffiliated voters should be voting for Republican candidates in the primary.
2: It's not disenfranchising anybody. If somebody wants to vote in the Republican primary, they all they have to do is just affiliate as Republican.
0: Unaffiliateds can also take part in the Democratic primary by the way but Dems are not trying to change that uh, meanwhile there are critics of Williams and his style of politics Benton
5: absolutely fundraising has been lackluster and many people don't like the inter-party attacks against Republicans I spoke with Dick Wadams he's a former GOP party chair he thinks it violates the party's bylaws and ultimately just hurts the GOP and helps Democrats
1: I think that is the first time in Colorado political history A state Republican Party has put out a fundraising letter saying we're going to go after Republicans with the money you send us.
5: And when it comes to ending the primary, Wadhams backs the current system. He thinks it would be a disaster to block unaffiliated voters from participating. And he doesn't want to move to having a caucus only, which he thinks would really limit participation. And caucuses usually result in the the far right grassroots nominating candidates. Wadham says Republicans who have historically won in Colorado tend to be mainstream conservatives who can appeal to unaffiliated voters.
1: They didn't run to the hard right. We've got a bunch of people in the party right now who think running hard right in the primary, that's the way to win the general election. I got news for them. Colorado's never been that way.
0: As you mentioned, fundraising for the Colorado Republican Party's been lackluster in recent months. But I would note that neither state party has ever been much of a fundraising juggernaut because of contribution limits voters passed I think, more than 20 years ago.
5: That's true, but for the first time in years, the Colorado GOP isn't paying any staff. I recently went down to the headquarters in Greenwood Village. Huh. The lights were out, blinds were drawn, so no one was working out of the office. But according to campaign finance filings, the GOP is still paying close to $4,000 a month in rent. But several Republicans I spoke with said they weren't going to donate to the party, given all of this discord. And here's Pete Woods from Steamboat Springs.
1: As long as people are calling each other names and handing a gift to the the Democrats through exhibiting our division and our disdain for each other, there's no value in me donating to the party.
5: Other Republicans echoed that sentiment and said they would instead give to individual candidates. I did reach out to Williams, and he declined an interview request, so I wanted to add that. But one other interesting thing to note is that a lot of people told me the litmus test for being considered a true conservative is whether you stand by former President Donald Trump and believe the 2020 presidential election was stolen.
0: Interesting. We'll talk about this meeting coming up Saturday. Republicans will discuss whether to opt out of the state's primary. Uh, I want to say if they exclude unaffiliated, they exclude the largest voting block in Colorado. Those voters are bigger than any party. Um, Will anything official be decided this weekend, Benta?
5: They aren't formally voting on that yet. Instead, this meeting on Saturday will decide whether to adopt a bunch of rule changes. And these changes would essentially make it easier to opt out of the primary when Republicans do end up voting on that later this year.
0: A process then you'll keep following. Benta, thanks so much. Thanks, Ryan. CPR Public Affairs reporter Benta Berkland on divisions within the Colorado Republican Party as it grapples with its future and what's become a blue state. When we come back, there will be a postcard waiting for you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, it's Vic Vela from CPR's podcast, Back From Broken, returning for season four. More stories about the highest highs. That moment changed my life. The darkest moments.
4: I started itching violently. And
0: what it takes to make a comeback. Admitting to somebody that
2: I need help took way more strength than a physical action. Back from Broken. Find it
0: wherever you get your podcasts.
6: With support from Step Denver.
0: Oscar Wilde, the witty, rhapsodic Irish writer, visited Leadville in April 1882. This was before writing his comedy of manners, The Importance of Being Earnest. Dressed in a typically flamboyant fashion, he lectured
2: a packed Tabor opera house about the ethics of art. The audience of miners and shopkeepers liked Oscar Wilde, and he liked them, saying they were polished and refined compared to the people I met in larger cities in the East. He was invited to dinner at the bottom of a silver mine for a three-course meal of whiskey, whiskey, and whiskey. And later, at a Leadville saloon, Oscar Wilde noticed a sign that read, Please do not shoot the pianist. He is doing his best. This, Wilde wrote, was the only rational method of art criticism he encountered.
0: Avid listeners may know that story from the Colorado postcards that air on CPR News and KRCC. Well, tomorrow is Colorado Day celebrating statehood in 1876, and you will hear Colorado postcards all throughout the day tomorrow. We're going to meet the creators of this audio franchise, the voice you have already heard, John Pino, and Jillian Cold Snow. Welcome to you both.
7: Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having us.
0: So good to be here. I like a meal of whiskey, whiskey, and whiskey, by the way. <laughs> One of the very first postcards that you created was about a stray dog in Broomfield. Why don't we listen to this, and then we'll discuss. If you have to cross the railroad tracks in
2: Broomfield between Midway Boulevard and Industrial Lane, you'll use a pedestrian bridge called Shep's Crossing. It was named for a stray dog who hung around the Denver-Boulder Turnpike job site when it was built in 1950. Workers warmed to him, fed him, and named him Shep. When construction was completed, attendants at the newly built toll booth took him in, they enjoyed his company, and drivers going from Denver to Broomfield looked forward to Shep's calm and friendly presence. Many regularly brought him treats or dropped spare change into a bucket beside the booth for his upkeep. In 2021, the city council named the Midway Bridge Shep's Crossing after Broomfield's beloved celebrity canine, who lived at the toll booth 14 years and whose headstone reads, Shep, partly shepherd, mostly affection.
0: did that piece how did this series come to be Jillian
7: Well when I came to CPR in 2021 one of the things I tried to do was to get a greater sense of place into Colorado Public Radio and I've always been interested in telling little stories that are just lurking under the surface hmm. in any location right and Colorado has such a wealth of history plants animals and characters Including Shep, that I thought, you, you know, let's try and tell these stories in a way that make people sit up and take notice and go, I didn't know that or what. Could that be true? (laughs) or Oh, I'd forgotten all about that. And that's how the series came to be. And that particular story uh, was told to me by our production head, Doug Clifton. And John and I thought, oh, this is going to be a great story. Who doesn't love the story of a dog that everybody the whole town loved Shep, the
0: turnpike dog that's right especially in colorado which i feel like is a very dog state (laughs) and it occurs to me there is a lot of colorado content you know in our newscasts or in a show like colorado matters but there's a tremendous amount of real estate john in the breaks in between programs and this is an opportunity to dazzle people in those like minute minute 30 pauses in between shows
2: You know, here behind the scenes, we call this project Feeding the Beast. (laughs) You have to feed the beast. There are so many holes to fill across one day on the radio. But when you can feed the beast something tasty, something bite-sized, something memorable,
0: like one of these postcards, I I think you're doing something right. Well, then you started seeing postcard potential everywhere, Jillian. (laughs)
7: We certainly did. I mean, some of these postcards leapt out at us. In one instance, I was driving past Fraser, and I noticed the street sign that said Doc Susie Avenue. And I started thinking, who is Doc Susie?" Doc Susie? And then I uncovered this amazing story of a country doctor who had so much grit. What a story. When Susan Anderson got off the train in Fraser in 1909, she brought with her two things she picked up in Michigan, a medical degree and tuberculosis. She had tried to set up a medical practice in Cripple Creek, but women doctors were not welcome. Denver and Greeley were equally unreceptive. By the time she crossed the Continental Divide, Susan Anderson was very ill and hoped the clean mountain air would help it did and soon she built a medical reputation first among a few women who brought children and eventually husbands. They called her Doc Susie. Traveling on foot, ski, snowshoe and by train she saved many lives and brought more into the world. By some accounts she delivered more than half the population of Fraser. Her home still stands there and the street bears her name. Doc Susie Avenue
0: Fascinating how TB reshaped Colorado and also how she is both doctor and patient having had tuberculosis. You know, I figured I would highlight my favorite postcard of yours, John Mm. and Jillian. Uh, Maybe this is because it's about a building that I see and often go in every workday. The most iconic
2: skyscraper in Denver is quite possibly the one folks call the cash register building. With its double-curved crown and long association with various banks, it may be no surprise that it was built in 1983 to mimic an antique cash register. It was also originally intended for Texas. Accordingly, architect Philip Johnson's postmodern design did not take Colorado snow into account, which could grow into huge drifts, slide off the curved roof, and smother people and vehicles on the street. So heating coils were installed on top of the building to deter accumulation. At 52 stories high, the building is not the city's tallest, though it may seem so, as it scrapes the sky from the edge of North Cap Hill. Underground, the cash register building's vault was the scene of a deadly robbery in 1991, which left four dead and remains unsolved to this day.
0: Do I dare name the tallest building, or am I stealing a future postcard, Jillian? Don't do it. <laughs> don't yeah, do, don't it. do it. Okay. okay. You know, there will be people filling in the blank, but I'm not going to mention it. Fascinating that the cash register building was originally designed for Texas. You know, I do feel like history, and certainly the most curious chapters of history, are prone to exaggeration or hyperbole. Uh, So, John, how do you separate myth from reality? (laughs) Personally or in my work life? (laughs) Uh,
2: You know, yes, there is a, a... a place to be truthful and honest and factual with these postcards. But folklore and um, a little storytelling, maybe a little stretched truth now and then, I don't think it's out of bounds when it comes to these postcards. Because after all, we are exploring the colors that make this state so colorful. And, you know, maybe some of those colors aren't Quite exactly what you'd find in nature, but very close.
0: (laughs) Jillian, do you find yourself separating wheat from chaff or false from fact?
7: Yes. As John says, you know, we will tell the myth, but when we get to the fact portion, we fact-check everything. Uh In the case of the cash register building, I got a call from a listener after it aired who said, you know, you talked about snow sliding off the roof. Mm -hmm. That's not the way it happened. It came crashing down and and your postcard doesn't give the sense of the impact and the violence, uh, so you need to change it. Hmm. Well, I looked everywhere and I couldn't find any account uh, which of an
0: avalanche, exactly of a skyscraper (laughs) avalanche.
7: So I decided not to include it. So that's how i try to separate
0: Mm -hmm. that i appreciate the nuance there it's very public radio (laughs) i i know that one of your goals is to tell a fuller history of colorado a testament to its diversity people likely know margaret molly brown but they may not know clara brown
4: when clara brown gained freedom from slavery in virginia she immediately went in search for her husband and children She heard one daughter was out west, so Clara walked 700 miles and ended up in Central City in 1859. With her laundry service for miners and domestic work, she saved up an astonishing $10,000 and then invested in mining claims, which put her in very good financial shape. Clara opened her home to the sick, injured, and homeless of all races and religions, And she traveled to Kansas to persuade black people to move to Colorado for jobs vacated by mining strikes and supported their new neighborhoods. They called her Aunt Clara Brown, the Angel of the Rockies, who at the age of 80, finally reunited with her long lost daughter.
0: Hmm. You know, I've heard of entrepreneurs like Clara Brown as mining the miners. That is, there was this Mm. huge influx of miners and there was money to be made serving them i understand there's a nugget you couldn't fit into that postcard about clara brown
7: yes these are all 60 seconds so we often have to (laughs) drop some facts and what i loved was when clara brown's own properties were lost to fires and floods the community stepped in to get her into a cottage in denver her generosity and her kindness was repaid
0: was repaid uh, i guess by a grateful community go ahead john
2: well, and I was going to say, it's that, that story of generosity and kindness. I do think that's the sparkle in so many of these stories that we tell in these Colorado postcards. It, and it's a nice way to counterbalance the news of the day at times. Something mm-hmm. that reminds us that we can be good to each other.
0: Oh, yes. It's so nice to have some balance these days. Many of these postcards do feel uplifting. And so I thought we would wrap up with one of your favorites have you, have you managed to have a meeting of the minds here and pick one? <laughs> oh, it's
2: John? like picking your favorite child, you yes. know? It's not going to happen. But, Jillian, you're awfully fond of this one here, aren't you?
7: Yes. Our favorites provide a moment of discovery, a moment of joy, reflection, and help us to see Colorado in a new way. This one does that wonderfully and takes us out of this world literally. Mm-hmm.
2: July 6, 1924. A funeral procession in what is now Johnstown. 200 mourners are startled by four large explosions. A meteor has streaked into the Earth's atmosphere and breaks up. Sounds like machine gun fire, whistling, screeching, rumbles, roars, and the smell of sulfur fills the air, leading some to think it's the end of the world. In fact, those mourners were rare witnesses to a meteorite fall. 27 pieces of the Johnstown meteorite were recovered over a 10-mile area. The largest, more than 50 pounds, embedded itself nearly six feet deep into Colorado soil. The rock had interplanetary origins from Vesta, the second largest and brightest asteroid in the solar system, more than 100 million miles away, somewhere between the orbits of Mars and
0: Jupiter. Yeah, I think I, would perceive the world as ending as well if I were witnessing (laughs) Mm, that. You know, I think what's fascinating is that many of these postcards make me want to go to a place and experience the sight. I think Johnstown's one of those. How many more postcards will there be?
7: There is no limit.
0: Uh-huh. There
7: are so many ends. stories to be told. And so many beasts to feed.
8: Yes. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. yes.
7: <laughs> I can't see an end to this, Ryan, because every day I turn around, I see something else, and I go, there's got to be story in there. And frequently there is.
0: Yeah, it's so funny. I think of that when I see names on buildings, names on streets, names on parks. Every one of those is a character to discover. John, do you want people to reach out if they've got ideas? Please do. You know, I want to point out that every one of these
2: postcards is on our website. That's cpr.org slash postcards. And we are happy to entertain your ideas, um, your suggestions. Email us at postcards at cpr.org.
0: All right. cpr.org slash postcards for the lot of them. And Postcards at CPR.org if you have ideas to contribute. Well, thanks for spending a minute with us.
7: Thank you, Ryan.
0: Thank you, Ryan. John Pinnow and Jillian Cold Snow are the team behind the Colorado Postcards you hear on CPR and KRCC. And you'll hear lots of them tomorrow for Colorado Day as our state turns 147. Nearly 50 young people are now US citizens after immigrating from 17 different countries. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundin attended a special ceremony in Denver.
8: First, I'm gonna introduce you to this brand spanking new citizen. My name
9: is Niall.
8: And how old are you? Seven years old. And where are you from? Angola. How do you feel today about being a citizen?
9: Happy. And my parents are happy. Why does it make you happy, though? Just that I like
8: people smiling, and I smile, too. Yeah, becoming a citizen is pretty cool. And the moments in the ceremony leading up to that were pretty cool, too.
4: I'm going to begin with Afghanistan. The children
8: came from Angola, Cameroon, China, Ethiopia, India, Iraq, Jordan, Kyrgyzstan, Libya, Malaysia, Nepal, Nigeria, Qatar. Syria. Thailand and Ukraine. Some children were as young as three and the oldest 14. The kids have to recite the pledge. Nine-year-old Elizabeth from Nigeria knows it by heart.
10: republic for which you stand. One nation, under God, indivisible, of liberty and justice for
8: all. Elizabeth's in a bright blue dress. She beams throughout the whole ceremony. Her dream is to be a pharmacist like her mom. Elizabeth found the U.S. to be very different from what she thought would happen when she arrived here several years ago.
10: I thought I wouldn't make any friends and i will kind of be kind of lonely, but now I found out that it's very easy for me to make friends and I can probably do everything I dreamed of doing.
8: For several of the kids I spoke with, the freedom of movement that comes with being a citizen here is the biggest allure. Here's 13-year-old Eos from Ethiopia.
11: One of the benefits to be an American citizen is to get permission to go anywhere you physically want. When I'm older, I'll probably want to go to like Canada, Russia... Asia, like everywhere, really.
8: And eight-year-old Manara from Iraq says becoming an American was key to her dream.
11: I want to travel, and when I grow up, I become a
9: YouTuber, so I can make a lot of videos in other countries.
8: Manara, too, feels a sense of freedom and safety here, to be who she wants to be.
9: In Iraq, there's no electricity. It's very dangerous there, and we're not safe there. Right here, we're very
11: safe.
8: The immense size of the U.S. is something that surprised several of the children, like a U.S.
11: I didn't even know there was 50 states in America. The place was just generally better. Like Ethiopia, I had to walk to school. It was close, but it was, like, rocky, it was dirty. And when I came here, it was straight. Like, I could drive in a car to school, I can go on a bus, and it, it surprised me.
8: A couple of things the U.S. doesn't understand is people say because he was born in Ethiopia, he should have an Ethiopian accent. Which,
11: really, I, I, I'm not sure about. And another thing I don't know is that some people say that the U.S.A. is kind of bad, like there's some things wrong with it.
8: He says he's learned about the U.S.'s violent and unjust history But in his opinion, so far in the short time he's been here.
11: I've never seen like so many good things happen in one continent before, really.
5: That I will support and defend. Uh, Support and defend. The Constitution and the laws.
8: But even young Niall from Angola at age seven already has a sense that this nation, whether it's exceptional or ordinary, good or bad, or a roiling mixture of both, is complex and complicated. When you got your certificate today, describe how you felt inside when you got that piece of paper. Love? What's one thing you like about the US?
9: Is that this is a free country.
8: What does a free country mean to you?
9: It means a country that's that doesn't do war anymore.
8: Is there anything about this country you don't understand that you have a question about?
9: Why is there fights? Fights? Yeah, fight.
8: And where do you see fights?
9: Fights around everywhere.
8: Like you, maybe you see it on television?
9: And fights on school, everywhere. And why are there mean people?
8: But does that mean you have to fight or be mean?
9: Just love wins.
8: I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News.
0: And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a new label that gives women in jazz their long overdue. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC.
4: News stories don't wait to unfold. They just happen. And when they do, no matter where you are, CPR News helps you stay connected. Listen live at CPR.org or use the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone
0: name some women in jazz legends like billy Holiday, ella fitzgerald and nina simone may come to mind or maybe a new generation like diane reeves or esperanza spalding but what about women who mainly compose and arrange the names aren't so readily recognizable well a new company in lakewood aims to change that cpr arts and culture reporter eden lane introduces us to the musicians behind Brava Jazz.
6: Alan Baylock is a respected and sought-after jazz composer and educator. As the director of the Grammy-nominated One O'Clock Lab Band at the University of North Texas, Baylock wanted to find more options by women for the repertoire, but he couldn't find many big band charts written by women at the major publishing firms. When he met composer, arranger, and pianist Annie Booth at a presentation she gave for the UNT Jazz and Gender Equity Initiative, they both knew they could make a change. They incorporated Brava Jazz Publishing in the fall of 2022 and officially launched on International Women's Day, March 8th of this year. Their company offers a diverse catalog of big band music for all ability levels, from middle school to professional, composed and or arranged by women. Annie Booth began her early love of jazz at home, about 11 years old, with her musician father and then at school.
4: So I went to Legacy High School in um, Broomfields, Colorado, and I, I really found my passion for jazz through a great nonprofit based here in Denver called the Colorado Conservatory for the Jazz Arts, which has been around for over 20 years now. And it's it's a kind of extracurricular music education nonprofit that connects like-minded teens um, in the Denver metro area who are interested in learning jazz and connects them with mentors who are professional jazz musicians. So once I got involved with uh, CCJA, everything totally changed and I was just totally uh, hooked. <laughs>
6: And how about you, Alan?
1: Yeah, I think it was similar for me. I heard it at home. My older brother was a trumpet player and he brought home some Miles Davis albums. And at first, I had no idea what was going on, but I loved the sound and I loved what I learned to be the freedom and the creativity of jazz. And I had a lot of friends and I had a slight knowledge of non jazz or what we call classical music. Mm -hmm. Um, And in my head, that was structured and it had form and boxes that you had to stay within. Of course, I learned later that those boxes are much more flexible than I had initially anticipated. But I just love the freedom of jazz, being able to express yourself in improvisation. And that sound kind of stuck with me from the very early days of hearing Miles Davis when I was still you know, eight or nine years old.
6: When we're talking about publishing whether it's music or filmmaking or writing there still exists gender inequity in all of those fields in every business in all of the arts in education but what was it specific about jazz where you felt you had some sort of mission that you could achieve toward addressing gender equity in jazz
1: I guess for me it was it's the my favorite type of music and I'm passionate about jazz from its inception up until today what's happening today and it kind of bothered me of course that it was such there was such inequity and such discrimination historically and currently and i figured as a white guy what could i do uh, what am i good at well i'm good at writing music and i love engraving music and i know a lot of people in the field and i thought well this is something i can do i can um encourage and help young women along their jazz composition and arranging path by maybe getting their music out there to more people. And it was hard for me to try to diversify the set list, the charts that we were playing in the one o'clock. It was, it was a tedious process of finding high quality music composed by women. It was out there, it, there just wasn't a central resource for it, and there were, I had to look under many rocks and many places to find it, which was not, it was not ideal. It was worth it, of course, but the the goal and the vision was to have a central location for all these wonderful pieces of music composed or arranged by women.
6: It's funny that both of you cited musicians as early inspirations and none of them were women.
4: Mm. Yeah. And I think that for me, that's something that I, it's actually a big part of my sort of development and my my vision for myself as a musician I didn't I never had any female mentors um, growing up you know in high school and college I never had any female music mentors jazz mentors and so I from a distance sort of um, became enamored with certain female jazz musicians who I you know would meet later on once I was older and and had a career but you know musicians like Maria Schneider Um, who's one of the preeminent jazz composers uh, in the world, you know, a NEA Jazz Master, uh, multi-Grammy award winner. And I saw her play with her big band um, at the University of Northern Colorado when I was in high school and that changed my life. I didn't know her, and I didn't know her music. And that experience is something I think about all the time. I was 15 years old, and I was in the audience, and and I got to see someone who I could, who was like me. You know, she was a woman leading a band full of all men, Um, and it was her music, and her music was is unapologetically feminine.
6: those occasions where you met at the University of North Texas, or UNT as I have now learned, (laughs) how did you go from that to launching a new music publishing business focused on female composers and musicians? Yeah, I
1: think it was a multi-pronged approach. Of course, the website creation was critical, but also inviting the women whose music we really respected and loved the big band genre we started reaching out to them and asking for submissions and then you know we talked about i mean we had many many i mean hours and hours we would have a weekly meeting we still have a weekly meeting on zoom but i think it was just getting the concept of what it what it might be like i think especially initially i think annie was most important in the creation of the infrastructure itself most of our decisions are joint decisions and we've not yet had an argument. I'll knock on wood. I don't see one in the future either. Um, we're very compatible. And I think our um, vision is completely in sync. But Annie's experience as a business person was really critical in the early stages of, the, of forming the company
6: itself. Talk about that, Annie.
4: You know, I have um, I have a background in uh, I've worked for nonprofits, so I worked. I ended up working for that organization I mentioned earlier, Colorado Conservatory for the Jazz Arts. I worked there for eight years as an administrative assistant, and then a production uh, assistant, and then a program director. So I got I gained a lot of really great experience on that job in marketing and in communication, and even in, in like finances and bookkeeping and, and those types of things. So I was really grateful for that experience and. Then Just being a freelance musician for so many years, I guess about for the past decade, I've been a a freelance musician and band leader, and I do everything myself. (laughs) And I'm very, I'm very like, I can be you know sort of stubborn about it, but I, I actually love it. I love developing my own website. So I've always built my own website and and run it. And I love, uh, you know, creating graphics. So I've always done my own album art. And I've done album art for other people. I got into graphic design when I was in college. And yeah, so I think those skills, like the band leading skills, and just sort of the scrappiness that, I've sort of developed as a professional musician, as a freelance musician and booking myself and communicating all of these things. It's really cool now to look back and think that, I think all of these skills have blended together um, to lead me to this point, to lead me to Brava Jazz Publishing, where my skills along with Alan's immense skill in the world of jazz composition, all of these are blending together for this mission, which is to elevate the voices of women composers and arrangers in this field. So I'm, I'm really happy that I can use all these um, sort of random skills, you know, that I've, I've gathered over the years.
6: So let's, let's define what music publishing really means for, for composers and arrangers. What is it that Brava Jazz Publishing will be doing for the artists that you work with?
10: Hmm. Yeah,
1: for our artists, we'll re-engrave. So we'll make all their music look like professional publishers. Um, Well, because we are a professional publishing house.
6: And maybe we should explain what that means when you say engrave, too.
1: Yeah. Most everything now, actually everything that jazz bands read, of course, is computer notation. And there are two main software programs. One is called Finale and one is called Sibelius. And just as I talked about compatibility earlier, Annie is a Sibelius wizard and I love Finale. (laughs) So that works out really well. So... For the artists we'll re-engrave their music which means we'll put it into those um notation programs and make it look like a million dollars and then we'll also eventually get professional recordings when professional recordings aren't available so that's just part of the marketing having the music look great and having having it sound great and then of course we advertise and it's on our website and we're gonna be going to uh, our first Jazz Education Network Conference in January in New Orleans to exhibit and promote uh, our product there. So yeah, it's it's a matter of them getting visibility, but also um, taking what they have and making it look great and sound great.
6: And let's expand on the what you said when there isn't a recording available. Do I take that to mean that you'll arrange for recordings of their music as this is the standard, this is what the composer or arranger intended this to sound like, here is your model. Do I understand that correctly?
1: Yeah, a lot of times there's a lot of music being written in places that might not have a full big band available that can read music at a high level. So we're offering that also. Um, We haven't done it yet, but that's in our future to get a band together and record some of these wonderful compositions that may not have a great either live recording or any live recording, and especially not a studio recording.
4: Will you do that here in Colorado, Annie? Yeah, we certainly hope to. There's so many great musicians here in Colorado. There's so many great recording studios here that I've been lucky enough to, to get to know some of the engineers really well. So, yeah, you know, and part of our vision, too, is putting together an all-female jazz orchestra, an all-female big band to do some of these recordings. So that that's kind of, you know, long term once we get off the ground and running. But I think we're we're absolutely dreaming and planning on that now.
6: And what's charming about that is it's actually kind of a throwback to the all-girl bands from the from the past era that yeah. would play this type of music.
4: Yeah, the Sweethearts of Rhythm. There's a great film, a great documentary about that group. And yeah, there's, there's a, a long history of that.
6: When we look at your website, I see the artists you have listed are almost all female presenting.
4: Mm-hmm. Does
6: that mean that all of your composers and arrangers will be female-identified or no?
4: Yeah, so we have, um, we have a, a few um, arrangers who are working with us who are men, who, who I, I identify as men, but they have arranged songs composed by women. So at the heart of everything that we're publishing is a song written by a woman. So, and those those cases, like I mentioned, where um, it's a male arranger, those are, are gonna be a very small percentage of our catalog. But the arrangers that, that we're including, those, those arrangers are, are very, um, you know, very esteemed jazz arrangers. But yeah, um, everyone, all pieces composed and or arranged by women.
6: Jessica Smith is a saxophonist, composer, and educator currently residing in Portland, Oregon, and they are one of the Brava Jazz composers and arrangers. So as an educator and a musician and a composer and a mom, <laughs> yeah. what is the impact of having a publishing company that's focused on female-identifying artists like Brava Jazz?
3: I, I just got goosebumps. I mean, honestly, uh, I've spent... 20 years of my life, usually being the only female on a bandstand. Frequently creating my own opportunities to perform, my own opportunities to hear my music be played. And I think that there's just a, obviously Annie and Alan have figured this out, there's there's a problem. And I think that focusing on the problem and talking about the problem that there's not enough females doing this is the only way to fix the problem, you know, bring it up and be deliberate about it and mention it to younger students. Every time I have my students out at a festival, or we're watching other groups perform, I, I point it out, I say, do you see all the girls in that band? Do you see how there's no girls in that band? Or the only one is the piano player? It, it really is exciting for me that they are focusing on this Mm -hmm. it makes me kind of emotional (laughs) yeah and i'm thankful that they reached out to me especially now as my life is filled with so many new things as a mom now too um, it's like i have three separate lives that i'm living and having someone market my music and sell my music for me is going to be a huge relief and hopefully get my music in the hands of a lot more people
6: lots of moms or any parent that might hear this can identify with that three separate lives and having the support to, to market yourself or to find ways to connect
3: their work to others mm-hmm. will resonate. Can yeah. you expand on that for me? I, I mean, coming back to this disparity of, of females in, in music, as professionals, especially in jazz, I feel like a lot of it is that like we want to be parents. I, I put this off for years and years, I'm 34. And my parents, uh, and my husband's parents thought we'd never have kids because we waited so long. And I waited so long because I wanted to keep being a professional. And it was in my head that if I was a mom, I wouldn't be able to have a full time job as a teacher, because that's my other identity as an educator, um, be a professional performer and composer arranger, and be a mom. And wowie, I was right. You know what I mean? Like, once baby came, it was a whole other thing. So when Annie called me, I'm like, well, what does that mean, like, you're going to publish for me? Well, it means that I don't have to take care of the nuts and bolts of, of sending these charts to people individually, um, keeping my website updated, they will have all the stuff for me. It was It's like having a housekeeper come, it's like, oh, I don't have to worry about that for a little while, <laughs> which is going to mm. be really, really nice.
6: Another musician with Brava Jazz is Camila Vaitaitis, an award-winning pianist, vocalist, guitarist, and composer based right here in Denver, Colorado. So what is the importance of having Brava Jazz Publishing focusing on female-identified artists? What is it? What's the importance of it to you?
10: I think the importance can't be overstated. This mission of Annie and Alan is really going to open the door for not only like school band directors, middle school, high school, college, but also professional band leaders to just be integrating the amazing compositions that women are writing because it is a bit underrepresented at the moment. And I think if people have like kind of a one-stop shop where they can go find really good music written by women, uh, I think it's just going to improve the diversity within the big band realm, like at large around the world.
6: So why not just have you and all of the other women composers and arrangers just go through regular publishing companies? Why do we need Brava Jazz Publishing?
10: Um, I think because it's specialized and focused, it makes, it kind of sets it apart. And the fact that um, 50% of it is run by a woman who is an incredible composer, Mm -hmm. Um, she has that vision and that creative voice. And... I think that's something very unique that you probably don't see with a lot of the other major publishing companies.
6: And it's right here in
10: Colorado. Absolutely. As a Colorado-based musician, what is it that you think
6: people should understand about women in jazz?
10: You know, as I've, like, grown more in the jazz scene here and just in my self-confidence as a musician, I'm starting to identify less with the divide that I think I felt when I was younger between, like, male and female jazz musicians. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to embrace like, we are all just musicians. I think that having something like Brava lays the groundwork so that there there won't be a divide perceived by young women anymore, because they'll it'll just naturally be integrated into what they're playing. It'll be diverse music written by women and it won't even be a question. So I think that's why it's so important to have something like Brava.
0: Titus and Jessica Smith, two composers and musicians who signed on with the new Colorado label Brava Jazz. It gives women in jazz a publishing platform. They spoke with CPR arts and culture reporter Eden Lane. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with a bravo and a brava to this team.
2: Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete, Pete Kramer,
5: Andrea
4: Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher,
0: Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield, and I'm Ryan Warner here with CPR News and KRCC.